We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. so much for tuning in to Weird Distractions Podcast. This is a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate discussing true crime cases, paranormal hotspots, eerie folklore tales, urban legends, and conspiracy theories to provide you, and more than likely what Barbara Handler may consider a weird distraction from everyday life. This week's episode focuses on an unsolved murder case from almost 80 years ago that took place in West Hollywood, California. Before we get into it, though, I'll cover a little bit of housekeeping and then I'll fill you in on what I need distraction from this week. In terms of housekeeping today over on the Patreon feed is the last Even Weirder series episode being released before I take a bit of a break from Patreon. This month's Even Weirder episode covers the history, occult observations, and haunts surrounding the Twin Bridges Orphanage, located within the state of Montana. If you want to tune in, go to www.patreon.com slash weirddistractionspodcast. In terms of my need for a distraction this week, I would have to say my need for a distraction is realizing that vampire fish are located in the Great Lakes of Ontario. And I know what you're thinking, Alex, unless you're swimming there, you're not going to have to be bothered by them. Oh, but you'd be wrong. I was recently on the Weather Network app on my phone and just mind my business, just seeing what the weather was going to be like. And for some reason, they had this article about the vampire fish, and me, being me, and a glutton for punishment, I guess, decided to go down a very scary spiral into what vampire fish are, and you know what? That was a little too much for me. I wouldn't say I have a fear of fish, but I feel as though I'm stumbling upon really terrifyingly looking animals that are located in water that, you know what, I don't really want to fuck with. I just don't want any kind of friendship or anything. Just no. So my need for distraction is just vampire fish. Having said that, let's get into this week's distraction before I pick up my phone and start googling vampire fish photos because that's just how I apparently like to punish myself these days. I'm not even sure how I found this week's episode topic, to be quite honest with you. But once discovered, I knew I wanted to learn more and tell you all about it. With that said, this week's Weird Distractions episode covers the unsolved murder of Georgette Bauerdorf, an American socialite whose life was taken far too soon. Due to potential coarse language, distressing topics such as sexual abuse, along with other disturbing adult themes that could be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. Georgette Elise Bauerdorf was born to parents George Frederick Bauerdorf and his wife, Constance Donhauser, on May 6 of 1924 in New York City. Georgette had an older sister, whose name was also Constance, but she would apparently go by Connie. It's weird that women, if they named their daughters after themselves, they wouldn't go by Constance Jr. I mean, you see Stuart Jr. or Robert Jr. when it comes to men, but you don't see that in women, which is interesting. Anyways, 
The girl's father, George, reportedly made the family's fortune as a Wall Street financer who dabbled with oil in Louisiana, Texas, and Nevada. In other words, the family was pretty financially well-off. Anytime anyone mentions that someone has oil money, my mind automatically gets dollar signs, kind of like you see in the cartoons. So, needless to say, the Bauerdorfs were pretty rich. Life wasn't always easy despite the family's wealth, though, as I read that Georgette and Connie's mother passed away in March of 1935. Based on online resources, after Georgette finished grade school, the family relocated from New York City to sunny California, specifically to Los Angeles. Georgette continued on with her studies while in L.A., where she would set her career goals for acting and move to West Hollywood. West Hollywood, for us non-locals, is approximately 30 minutes away from Los Angeles, so it wasn't really a big move location-wise. Her El Pacio apartment, located at 8493 Fountain Avenue, apparently has an estimated monthly rent of $23,431 USD in 2023, according to Zillow, which I will say, that's a lot of freaking money for just for rent. Who's paying this money for rent? If you're paying this for rent, please let me know, because I have several questions for you. I can imagine that the rent was probably pricey even back when Georgette called it home. One Medium article I came across mentioned that Georgette's family actually resided in the apartment with Georgette for a bit before they reportedly moved or maybe just vacationed in New York. It's not really clear to me. Nonetheless, what we do know is that she eventually was living on her own within the apartment. Once Georgette kind of settled into her own space, she got herself connected to the Red Cross and United Service organizations to volunteer as a junior hostess on Wednesday nights at the Hollywood Canteen. The Hollywood Canteen, once functioning on Cahuiga Boulevard within the neighborhood of Hollywood between October 3rd, 1942 and November 22nd, 1945, offered food, dancing, and just overall entertainment for service workers of the war before they went off overseas. Basically, it seems like it was a bit of a club slash bar slash you could get chicken nuggets and a beer and maybe dance a bit before you, you know, went to war. A little bit of a pit stop, if you will. It seems like there were many Hollywood hotshots that donated their time and maybe their money to the canteen. Some of the famous volunteers that caught my eye include the likes of Diana Barrymore, who's a relative of Drew Barrymore, Eve Arden, Lucille Ball, Charlie Chapman, Betty Davis, Orson Welles, Katherine Hepburn, Elizabeth Taylor, Frank Sinatra, and more. It makes me wonder, given some of these big names, if Georgette felt a sense of importance or no notoriety. Not only was she doing a great thing by volunteering, but she was also potentially getting up close and personal with some pretty talented and well-known folks. One quote I came across from a website dedicated to Georgette noted that Georgette was real proud of being a junior hostess at the canteen. During this time, Georgette and her good friend, June Ziegler, apparently worked at the Los Angeles Times newspaper on top of volunteering together at the canteen, which is nice. I mean, you get to work with your friend, you volunteer with your friend. Even though Georgette lived alone, it sounds like she and June hung out quite a bit, or at least saw each other quite a bit. As you can imagine, Georgette was a busy woman, but she was also busy with her love life. Accounts claim that she was being courted by a man named Jerry Brown. It's interesting because some sources claim the identity of Georgette's boyfriend is unknown, whereas others just fully state it's this guy named Jerry Brown. 
Regardless, on October 10th of 1944, Georgette reportedly cashed a $175 check before proceeding to buy a flight to El Paso, Texas. Apparently, she would go on to tell her friends that she was going to El Paso to meet up with Jerry, who was reportedly stationed at Fort Bliss. One resource I came across claimed that the tickets weren't purchased until October 11th, so there's a bit of discrepancy there. It could have been the 10th, it could have been the 11th. I'm shrugging my shoulders, who's to know at this point? Tragically, what we do know is that Georgette would never get on this flight, and she would never see Jerry again. It probably seemed like an average Wednesday for Georgette, where she would reportedly spend the day with her friend, Rose Gilbert. It was the 11th of October when the two got together, with reports noting the pair went shopping, grabbed some lunch, before parting ways at around 2 p.m. Rose would share later on that Georgette seemed to be happy and in good spirits. She didn't have any concerns. But later on that day, at around 7 p.m., Georgette met up with her other friend, June Ziegler, aka the one she volunteered at the canteen with, and that's where Georgette seemed a bit off. According to a Medium article by Jennifer Baldwin, June would later report that prior to entering the canteen to volunteer that night, Georgette appeared to be nervous and agitated, but didn't explain why. Georgette even apparently asked June to stay with her at the apartment that evening. However, June wouldn't go home with Georgette that night. Overall, it appears that Georgette did not appear to be her usual self on that October evening. She seemed off. June later recalled noticing one soldier being persistent in doing the jitterbug with Georgette that evening. Georgette seemingly wasn't vibing with the soldier as she claimed she wasn't a big jitterbug dancer, but she finally agreed to dance with him despite being annoyed with him. Georgette would sign out of the canteen at 11.30 p.m. before potentially making home to her apartment presumably alone, at around midnight. We don't have ring camera footage by any means to confirm that she was home around midnight, but reports claim the building janitor heard someone walking around her apartment in high heels around this time and assumed that it was just Georgette and that she was home. At 2.30 a.m. on October 12, 1944, a neighbor reportedly heard a woman screaming, despite the apartment building being allegedly soundproof. And a direct quote from the Morbidology podcast website, quote, The deafening scream was followed by Georgette pleading, Stop, stop, you're killing me. Following this alarming announcement, the neighbor lay back down and fell asleep. End quote. Later in the morning of October 12th, Frederick Atwood, the janitor of the building, along with his wife Lulu and one of his daughters, entered Georgette's apartment after they found her front door mysteriously ajar. The Atwood crew had just finished cleaning another tenant's apartment at around 11.10 a.m. and planned to clean Georgette's next. As they entered the apartment, I wonder if the Atwoods felt as if something was off. I mean, the front door was opened a bit, randomly, and on top of that, when they entered the apartment, they noticed that they could hear water running from upstairs. Lulu Atwood made the truck up the stairs before calling Frederick to come up as she discovered a grisly scene. Frederick proceeded to run up the stairs and found Georgette's body in the bathtub, face down as hot water proceeded to pour out of the tap. The tub was reportedly filled two-thirds of the way, and originally the Atwoods believed that perhaps Georgette was unconscious due to being hurt or due to some kind of fainting incident. Frederick attempted to drain the water before proceeding to try and help Georgette in the event that she was still alive. But the sad reality kicked in when Frederick was unable to revive Georgette. Soon thereafter, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department had arrived on scene. 
The investigators figured that, once she was home, Georgette had made herself a snack, due to finding an empty string bean can and some melon rinds within her kitchen garbage. Given it did not appear that she had a welcomed guest in her home, police automatically assumed that some kind of intruder came in, catching Georgette off guard. Interestingly enough, they noticed that there was two ashtrays with cigarettes found within the apartment. It's unknown who the smoker may have been, given some accounts claim Georgette didn't smoke, but I gather that these cigarette remnants may have been from the evening of October 11th. Further from the investigation, Georgette's bedroom was intact and there did not appear to be a struggle overall. What I'm about to share next is a bit more graphic and can be triggering, so keep this in mind as I proceed on with the information. Georgette would be found with only her pajama top on, with her pajama bottoms being found on the floor of her bedroom. Investigators noticed that Georgette had a 9 by 9 inch cloth pushed deep into her throat in what was believed to be an attempt to silence her or simply gag her. Focusing on the cloth for a moment, resources such as the SFGate website noted that the cloth that was used to gag Georgette was extremely unusual and it seemed to be a European-issue medical bandage. Georgette didn't have this laying around her home, but investigators speculated that perhaps it came from a soldier on leave from a European tour that maybe Georgette befriended. As mentioned earlier, investigators believe Georgette's attacker was more than likely hiding out in her apartment waiting for her to come home. The reasoning behind this theory is due to a light bulb outside reportedly being unscrewed in an attempt to keep it dark outside. It's believed that the murderer stood on a chair to reach the light bulb nearly eight feet off the ground. For those wondering, fingerprints were found smudged on the light bulb. Horrifically, investigators determined Georgette had been raped and strangled to death. They felt that the crime had been sexually motivated, as there were no signs of a robbery since Georgette's valuable belongings still remained in her apartment. That is, all her belongings minus her vehicle and some cash. Which, technically, the vehicle was her sister's that she was borrowing, but regardless, it was gone for a moment. It turns out that this car and about $100 were taken sometime after she was murdered, with investigators thinking that the car theft was more than likely taken as a way to escape the scene. The car, being a green 1936 Oldsmobile, was eventually located abandoned and out of gas 10 miles away from the apartment building. Fingerprints were found within the Oldsmobile that matched the fingerprints found in Georgette's apartment. Now, these fingerprints were collected, however, investigators couldn't match them to anyone, including the massive national database of enlisted men. With that being said, investigators had quite the mystery on their hands. Initially, her father, George, thought his daughter's death was merely an accident. The San Francisco Examiner from October 14, 1944, noted the following, quote, her father, George Bauerdorf, who has interest in oil and mining, told officers by phone from New York where he is vacationing that he believed his daughter's death was accidental. He said she suffered from severe cramps and heart pains and probably fell into the tub, end quote. What's weird is that in some resources, Georgette's stepmother apparently denied that Georgette ever had fainting spells. I'm not sure if this is maybe misreporting or just some kind of weird instance, but regardless, it is a bit of a discrepancy. Despite this information, police and others alike felt that this was not the case. This wasn't an accident. This was intentional. This was horrific. Although Georgette had been found face down in her bathtub, there was no indication that her cause of death was due to drowning. But this begged the question, who would want to murder Georgette? 
Was it someone she knew? Had it been someone stalking her? Or was this a case of a random killing? It seems like investigators consider the suspect to be a soldier given Georgette volunteered at the canteen and, well, was surrounded by enlisted folks most of the time. From what has been stated online, Georgette was known to give servicemen rides home and even allowed a few of them to stay at her apartment if they didn't have a place to stay for the night. Having said that, it was known that she would hang out with some of the soldiers that she met at the canteen outside of the establishment from time to time. I do want to say some accounts dismiss these notions completely. For example, there was one quote in the LA Daily Mirror article I came across noting the following. Family friends say that Georgette, a graduate of exclusive girls' schools, was well-mannered and never entertained men at the apartment. Perhaps on occasion, one of her gentleman friends might stop in for a moment or two, but she never asked them to remain, her father's secretary said. She was schooled in a convent in New York on Long Island, graduated from a girls' school here, and had very definite ideas of propriety end quote. I mean, she was also a 20-year-old woman living on her own, so who really knows? Maybe she did hang out with the soldiers outside of the canteen. Maybe she did, and it's really hard to say. One particular soldier was brought into questioning, and that was a soldier who wouldn't let up trying to get Georgette to do the jitterbug with him. The man's name was Cosmo Volt, who confirmed that he danced with Georgette on that fateful October 11th evening. Cosmo was reported explaining his interactions with Georgette in the following quote, She was not a good dancer, but wanted to learn. I was a professional dancer back in Astora, Long Island, and I'm a good jitterbug. End quote. Even though he could have allegedly annoyed Georgette, there was no other ties between Cosmo and Georgette and no further evidence that Cosmo had anything to do with her death. Because of that, he was released and it was back to the drawing board. It seemed like, even though investigators thought that it could have been a soldier perhaps behind Georgette's murder, they weren't able to really pinpoint which soldier it was and what kind of relationship the alleged perpetrator and Georgette could have had. Then there was a man by the name of John Lehman Sumter. In December of 1944, then 22-year-old John Lehman Sumter confessed to the murder of Georgette. It turns out that John had recently been discharged from the Navy and court-martialed by the Army. Which leads me to think that perhaps during this time he was maybe struggling with his mental health and potentially some suicidal ideation. I say that because after he was confronted with contradiction in his story, John admitted that he had actually lied about the statement and that he didn't actually murder Georgette. John was quoted stating the following, I wanted to die in a chair because I had nothing to live for, end quote. Understandably so, John was ruled out, but alas, another suspect would come along. All eyes, even temporarily, were laid on a man named Robert George Pollock White. It turns out that Robert had attacked a 65-year-old woman in San Diego, California, and during his attack, he had shoved a cloth down the woman's throat in a similar manner as Georgette's attacker. Even though there was this similarity, there was actually nothing further that police were able to do in order to connect Robert to Georgette's murder. And that's not faulting the police, that's just there was nothing else to connect the two. 
You'll continue to notice as I go on, it seems like every time police had a suspect, there was just not enough evidence to tie that person in. There was maybe a sprinkle of, okay, maybe this person did it, but there was nothing further to really bring these people in, say, yep, definitively this person did it. Then, in October of 1945, almost a full year after Georgette was murdered, a similar attack was reported on Harbor Avenue in West Hollywood, about six blocks from Georgette's apartment. According to the Georgette Bauerdorf website, a man wearing a soldier's uniform entered the home of Miss Doris Hillman through an unlocked window on the ground floor and apparently confronted her in her bathroom as she was preparing to go to bed. This unknown individual apparently first turned off the light and then attacked her, causing lacerations on her face and hands. Doris's neighbors apparently heard Doris scream, they called the police, but by the time police arrived, the man had escaped the same window he entered. Doris Hillman described the assailant as a young man with blonde curly hair, blue eyes, with a medium stocky build. 1945 continued to be an interesting year in terms of Georgette's murder investigation. Not only did Doris get attacked in kind of a similar-ish fashion, but then there's the letter. So a local high school student found and handed over a letter addressed to police that mentioned Georgette's murder. The letter read, quote, Sometime after October 11th, the one who murdered Georgette Bauerdorf will appear at the Hollywood Canteen. He will be in uniform. Since he committed the murder, he has been in action in Okinawa. The murder of Georgette Bauerdorf was divine retribution. Let the Los Angeles police arrest the murderer if they can. End quote. Jumping to 1950, a man named Corporal Chester Vuckus was brought into the police station when it was believed that he had strangled an 18-year-old on a public footpath in Marin County. The Los Angeles Sheriff's deputies caught wind of this and reportedly went to interview Chester to see if perhaps he was behind Georgette's murder. He's in the army, there's strangulation involved, it's a young female victim. I can kind of understand maybe where police were going with this one. Chester was apparently only 23 years old in 1950, meaning he would have been about 16 or 17 at the time of Georgette's death. Not saying that he couldn't have murdered Georgette because he was 16 or 17, but the police felt like it would have taken someone maybe more mature in age to have committed the crime they committed. In the end, Chester was in charge with Georgette's murder due to lack of evidence, and according to the SF Gate website, he was actually also acquitted in the slaying of the 18-year-old the following year. Before stepping away from the suspects, I will also mention two other people that you may have forgotten about, one being Georgette's alleged boo, Jerry Brown, and the second being the builder's janitor, Frederick Atwood. Jerry, whose legal name was Jerome M. Brown, was apparently ruled out as a suspect given he was not in the area when Georgette was murdered. Again, he was stationed in Fort Bliss, so not possible for him to be in L.A. The pair seemed to be in the early stages of their relationship given they had only met in June of 1944, and from what I gathered, there was no reports of any concerns between the pair. Like, I couldn't find any issues that they were having, there was no bad blood by any means, shape, or form, the relationship seemed to be good. Finally, focusing on Frederick Atwood, it turns out there are some who thought Frederick may have been behind Georgette's murder. However, there was no motive or evidence connecting Frederick to the murder that I could find, other than he was there when his wife found Georgette in the bathtub. As such, Frederick was never poised as a prime suspect from what I gathered.
Now, despite having fingerprints along with the potential theories, including that whomever murdered Elizabeth Short, posthumously referred to as the Black Dahlia, may have murdered Georgette, there seemingly has been no progression in the case since about 1950. All the theories have kind of led to dead ends, and there's also been some issues with the fingerprints collected because apparently some of them were smudged and just not ideal to use. Georgette's case began to slowly get colder and colder as the years went on. And sadly, that's where it is today. It's a cold case. There really hasn't been many updates in quite some time from what I gathered online. Georgette would be buried in the Barador family mausoleum within Woodlawn Cemetery located in the Bronx neighborhood of New York. Her family members, including her family and sister, would pass away not knowing whatever happened to Georgette. Georgette's murder would join the list of other unsolved murders from Los Angeles that have baffled investigators, locals, and folks alike that are lured into learning more about mysteries like Georgette's murder, like a moth to a flame. It pains me to say that we are closer to it being the 100-year anniversary of Georgette's murder than we are time-wise from when the murder actually happened. Time is a crazy thing, and there's been a lot of time passed since Georgette was last seen alive. Who knows what time will bring when it comes to Georgette's case? It could bring more questions or, hopefully, maybe some answers. Let me know your thoughts on today's episode over on the podcast social media accounts or, as always, feel free to shoot me an email. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming Weird Distractions or any podcast on a podcast platform that allows you to leave a rating or review, please consider leaving a rating or review because that is the best way and the cheapest way, because it's free, to support your favorite podcasts. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an episode is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find Weird Distractions over on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and on TikTok. Do you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month? Why not join one of two tiers over on the Weird Distractions Patreon? Each month you get exclusive content, such as bonus episodes and bonus series, such as the Even Weirder series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early and ad-free access to regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to www.patreon.com slash weirddistractionspodcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Susan, Jennifer, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you and appreciate your support so much. Without you, Weird Distractions may not be what it is today. Lastly, I want to hear from you. I would love to collect your stories of paranormal encounters, 
too close to home true crime cases, maybe even some weird MLM experiences, or maybe just in general weird things that you've encountered so that I can continue to release the Listener Distractions series. And you might be tuning in for the first time and you might not know what I'm talking about. This is a series that Christy and I originally started where we would read your personal experiences on air. If you have a story you want to share, please email me at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections needed to be made after today's episode, please let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.